Welcome to a new episode of the Life Science Get Together podcast. Today with a very special guest from France and meanwhile Austria, Sebastian Croyer. Welcome. Thank you, Christian, and welcome everybody. Happy to be here and to discuss about uh, life sciences and uh, what I've been doing for the last 20 years and in the next 20 years, I hope. I'm really curious about uh, your seven tales uh, from the other side of the negotiation table. I started in life science in 2006 and since then mostly supported uh, companies. And what I see, especially in the last one and a half years, it's incredible um, how the industry evolved. I just uh, checked the numbers before I went into the recording with you. And in 2011, for example, we had 720 million life science investments and it scaled up to 3.7 billion euros in 2017 when I started this life science get together event series and in this year we already had uh, up to June 2021 we already had 6 billion dollars life science investments which is uh, basically matching the number from the entire year of 2020 and within these years i experienced always one side of the negotiation table and not the other side so it's really a good thing to have you on the podcast and let's dig a little bit into uh, how you see life science investments uh, what happened in your life and what successes and failures you created uh, over the years my profession in companies usually is that they support life science entrepreneurs Uh, which are mostly scientists, um, in planning their companies, um, structuring the story to then put it on the negotiation table uh, with venture capitalists. And there is always this dichotomy uh, in planning. So part of the people swear on it and say, this is absolutely the best thing. And uh, the other part of it say, you can just ditch it. It's unnecessary. When we start working on something, reality changes everything. So the first question to you is, uh, what is really the view of the venture capitalists on planning when you see uh, shiny and uh, glowing numbers for the coming 20 years? Yeah, actually, that's a great question because it's something that VCs can laugh about or just be a bit sad about when you see these huge numbers in the next five, 10 years, and you know, they're never going to realize. And, you know, it's just to defend some sort of evaluation a position in the company and to try and present an attractive investment opportunity to VCs. So there's always this reality checks and to say, okay, is it really credible? And does it affect the credibility of the, of the entrepreneur in front of you? Because it's two sides of the same coin. Actually, you have to be able to sell a dream and that's what, entrepreneurs do in a way sell a dream to vcs too but also sell reality and be able to say okay we're not going to uh, uh to to give crazy numbers that are going to be affecting our, the way we look at the market and the way we can create value so it's a bit of a, of a, a double way to look at it you have to be exciting enough but also realistic enough so that's really an interesting way of thinking and I'm sure that a lot all VCs realize that it's just a business plan with Excel sheets and, uh, and numbers and PowerPoint presentation. And in reality, it won't like it won't happen. Everything is going to be so uncertain and so different that it's just, let's say, a vision, a direction of where the company wants to go, and then everything is going to be uh, moved. And I'm not even talking about the COVID crisis or this 
pandemic things are gigantic uh, seismic crisis. I'm just talking about a new competitor, a new technology, different customers, different way of developing, uh, orders in employing people, recruiting, uh, IP issues. So everything is going to be always different. So one thing I was really looking at when I was a VC and I've been doing that for 20 years so uh, was uh, do I fit with the entrepreneur in front of me? Can I live with him like for the five for the next five to ten years? Because actually it's a, some sort of a marriage with the entrepreneur and the VC. You're going to have a strong professional relationship for the next five, ten years, and maybe longer if you really get along. So do I want to work with this guy or with this woman in front of me? Because this is something that is going to be an not an everyday, but every week life of my life. And so I need to have this relationship. So I think you you should focus on the material things like uh, the technology, the IP, the, the business plan, etc. But you also try and see how do you fit in terms of person with uh, the, the people in front of you, because this is going to be so important. And this is a huge part of the success of companies, recruiting the right person and having the right uh, people and relationship with, with these people. Good. It's good yes. to hear that, that uh, everything is about relationship. But uh, let's go a little bit back to this to this planning exercise because uh, also in incubation and acceleration programs, uh, the trainers and the people who set up the programs spend a lot of time in uh, in planning exercises and training people into planning. And they always wondered what happens uh, on the VC side. So we put the plan together and of course everything can change. But yeah. uh, usually these changes happen anyways. Uh, how do uh, we see perceive such changes and how should entrepreneurs approach uh, a VC when they see, okay, guys, uh, we cannot uh, fulfill the plan, so we have to change this and that. Uh, what is the right approach in your eyes? Uh, in my eyes, you have to be really uh, transparent about it and uh, try to just explain why you want to change the direction you sell. You set a direction at day one of the, let's say, the investment of the first meeting, and then, of course, everything's going to change. So you have to be really, uh, uh, let's say, transparent and uh, and uh, rational about why you want to change direction, because this is a board. You're going to go right, left, uh, up, down, depending on where you want to go, but you have to have an explanation of, about why. And it's not just uh, we did it wrong first. It's just things have changed. We have we find the, the market positioning, where we find the technologies, the products, the competition. But you really have to do that. We know we live in an uncertain world. If we were not in an uncertainty business, we would just be an insurance product and a heavy startup would get a million euros with a, with a nice average rate and you will, you will give it back and you will have a reward at the end and we would not be needed anymore. And I think this is a dream of some LPs in venture capitalists to be able to say, okay, I'm going to get a 10% per year reward. And if I invest in large enough quantities of money in different startups, but it doesn't work that way because one is going to make a lot of money and many others are not. So you have to choose carefully. So this is a distinction between uncertainty and risk. And we're not a risky activity. We are an uncertain activity. So it's really a zero or one at the end. Uh, and so to come back to your question, I think you really have to say, okay, I made a plan to know and to tell people how much money I would need to go to which point of value creation or maybe an exit. Uh, if it's changed, if everything has changed and it will change, uh, you have to explain why is it? A, it's a better plan, it's, a, it's another plan, and just be really transparent about it and not try to hide the fact that maybe some ideas were wrong or some hypothesis. You just show the numbers and you try to have a discussion. And of course, it can get heated in the, in the moment because people are going to react and say, what? Sure. It's, not, it's not the real plan, it's not what we, we want. We wanted to see, 
But then the reality strikes and you have to say, okay, and admit it. And so a bit of humility is good and say, okay, uh, I was wrong in this part. This was this part I was right. And I we need to go into more these directions than this one and try to elaborate. And it's always good to add feedback from customers, partners, competitors, etc., to try and show that you're not deciding that just on your own uh, will. It's just a basic uh, market research or, or, or uh, interviews or customer feedback saying, okay, we need to go this way and this way. And I think the best entrepreneurs are the ones who listen the most, listen to the other people, to other point of view, so that they can adapt and move uh, in real time. And uh, it says, was this thing about pivoting in, uh, in the industry? Like, when do you pivot or pivot back, et cetera? You don't have to pivot every day, but you have <laughs> to be flexible enough to try and change over the course of time and say, okay, mm-hmm. I am adapting my course and my directions. So that's, uh, for me, something really important to be able to share with uh, the VC, the world, why is the uh, company today is different from the company yesterday. And it's going to change all time you know, of doing the whole process of the startup and every company. You know. So, yeah, I think you really have to listen and to be able to expose why you're changing and be uh, open to feedbacks. So maybe the VC in front of you or maybe the customer in front of you have a very great uh, knowledge of what you haven't seen and they can give you some really nice feedback to try and, and evolve the company. And then in the end, it's your decision as an entrepreneur. So you own it, you you go for it, and you try not to have regrets. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think um, uh, being wrong is a natu- it's a natural part of the process. When we develop a company, uh, nobody can 100% uh, percent predict the future. If that would be possible, uh, I would definitely put some money onto this yeah. company. <laughs> Yeah, but I would say that you need a plan for VCs because you need to show them how much money you want to raise and why mm. what's going to be the next point or the next target. So if you don't do a plan, you could say yeah, every plan is wrong, so why spend more time on these things? But it's a way to refine the way you think, to try and see where you want to go and to, at the end, put numbers on the table and say, okay, I want to raise one, ten, one hundred million dollars. The idea is, uh, why would you raise that much money or for what What would be the reason? You need a plan to be planning. And so you're going to spend a lot of time on your Excel sheets with uh, your CFO, your partner, etc. to try and put some numbers on the table and say, okay, it's not just I want two years of uh, salaries and then we should discuss again. <laughs> what do I do? How many people do I recruit? How many investment do I have? How much investment do I have to make? Etc. etc. So yeah, that's much more complicated than just uh, than just putting a, a number on the table and say, okay. That's that's good to hear. When I think about venture capital investments, um, I think we see investments is mostly about investing in novel industries. Do I, did I get the right picture uh, of that? For some of them, yeah. For the most innovative VCs, yes, it is trying to find the nice new trend and see it before the industry and the market and the media even catch it and try to promote it. It's always good to be before in front of trends so that you can really go with it and, and benefit from the development of a new market. You can have people say, okay, I want to go for the business model is set up where you know the customers, you know how you can target them, you know a lot of metrics that you don't know when it's a new market. But then this is not the same game in terms of developing a technology 
technology and how big it can be. Uh, I really think, and I've done most of my successes in this part, that you have to be ahead of trends and you have to take bets. Of course, some of them are going to fail. This is a everyday life of VCs, mm-hmm. but some of them, when they succeed, they succeed big. So that's why I think this is a, a big idea to try and see what kind of trends are coming out. And for most people, uh, you, you can see you can see the trends like five or 10 years before because you're connected with academics, with young startups. You don't necessarily have to invest in the first startup in one field. You can say, okay, this is the first one. I like the field. I'm going to dig in and try to find the one which fits better my uh, my needs. But you have to try and see which type of market you want to go. With Serencia, we went we went to directly into the microbiome, which was almost the first uh, European fund, and we made the first investment in this microbiome area. And it was a really interesting trend because in 2008, 2010, it was something that nobody even talked about. They didn't even know the world. It was like, what's microbiome? What are you talking about? <laughs> and now, 10 years later, everybody knows that. You had huge successful books. You had a lot of media communication, even a few products now, listed companies, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's starting to be something very interesting. And so, yeah, I think the idea is to be in front of the trend before them. If you get behind, you might be into this, um, uh, let's say, following uh, uh, technologies of, of startups. And it might be a bit more difficult to uh, differentiate yourself. So, so yeah. So that's uh, that's something that we really enjoy in the VC world is to be able to see the f- a bit of the future with this trend and say, okay, I'm going to bet on robotics, the microbiome, radio pharmaceutical, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, ahead of the time, and if it works, it's going to be very interesting. If it does not, if we have to wait so for the market to be there, it can be a, a bit of a pain. But uh, long term, I think this is the right approach, and uh, and it, it's going to be very interesting for you as a as a way to put yourself in the VC industry because we also have competitors in the VC world. So you have to find a way to say, okay, I'm the right VC for this company and this is the, the reason why. And taking early bets might be uh, the best way to attract uh, interesting entrepreneurs and companies because this is where the money is most needed. When you have to be the fifth investor in a 50 million euro round, yeah, that's good. Uh, it's, it might be a profitable exit, but it might not be the most profitable and you might not be... Uh, uh, the most differentiated, differentiated the VC in the, in the industry in your country or in, the, in Europe especially and the US it's even worse so uh, I think uh, yeah you should really think about where you position your, your company as a VC and as an entrepreneur because this is uh, as I said a marriage so you have to find the right partner that's a good uh, good point uh, pivoting back to the entrepreneur um, so from what I understood while you were talking uh, is that VCs usually invest in trends uh, in new trends so when I try to put it in a, in a compelling story for a VC um, so I have two ideas so one idea is um, as an entrepreneur to look for a scientist who has a noble idea and work on uh, a story to explain why this will become a trend and the second part that I experienced is uh, to sit together with an entrepreneur and looking at trends that already exist um, and come up with a list of, let's say, 200 competitors and say, okay, 200 companies uh, already are doing that. There must be something in that. Which story would be more compelling to a VC in your eyes? Would it be the story with explaining a noble trend and uh, being the first mover? Or is the VC world more looking for... Um, uh, already established trends in the market? I think it depends on the type of VC. So most uh, 
deep tech VCs would go for the first uh, category when you have a new tech and a new trend and you can really go for it and say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to disrupt this new market. Let's talk gene editing, um, can DNA writing, uh, these new technologies that are coming up in biotech, they're really disruptive. And, you, and when you see the first company, then you see they want to really change the game in these areas. It's really interesting. If you were to be a, a, a part of a lots of competition, you have to really show that you execute better, that you have a, a nice advantage, even if it's not a description. And so it's it's easier to get funding when when you have a, a bit of traction from the commercial side in this case than when you want to really finance technology. And so in deep tech, the hardest part is at the start is how do you get your first million so that you really develop the tech to make a product, a viable product. And sometimes it's not millions, it's tens of millions or hundreds of millions in case, case of pharma. So you have to be convincing enough to say, okay, I'm going to create something which is big enough so that you can invest this type of money in my company. Uh, and so I think the first mover is quite a huge advantage in pharma, especially with this IP and generics uh, things in the market. Uh, in other deep tech companies or industries, you can say, okay, I'm going to be uh, number 10, number 20, number 13 in my, uh, in my uh, industry just before because the market is big enough and it's rising enough so that I can really get a share of it. And then it's also a, 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 an idea about what's my end goal. Is my end goal to become a unicorn or just to become a nice, attractive exit for a larger company that I already spotted? Because when you start your company, one thing you should really do is spot the possible exit at the end so that you can really talk to a VC this way and say, okay, my goal is to be acquired by this type of, actor, of players or become a unicorn or do an IPO. But you have to show your, your vision and your understanding of, of the market and the, and the way VC works. This is the work. Actually, the, the, uh, you can perfectly be a very successful entrepreneur and say, okay, I'm going to create a company and I'm going to sell it between 50 million and 100 million euros in five years' time with a nice market niche, with a nice positioning, a nice small tech, and it's going to be perfectly uh, acceptable and VCs are going to invest in that because they believe in you and what you want to do. And it's completely different when you say, okay, I want to become a $10 billion company and I want to spend my 10 or 20 next years doing that. Uh, and I don't want to sell the company uh, early because it's not what I want to create. And so I'm going to try and provide uh, an exit through IPO, through secondary shares, secondary offerings. But really, uh, depending on what is your plan, you also can adapt depend, uh, your, your, your vision and your technology on competition and trends. Uh, and of course, it doesn't always realize the way you were thinking about it. So, <laughs> so you just, uh, just be able to, to say, okay, I wanted to do a unicorn. It's going to be a 50 million euro company. That's already a great success. So it should not be a... Let's stay a little bit on uh, on on planning. Um, I know both worlds, so the public company world with um, coming up with a 300 page plan for the next uh, 20 years, fleshing out every single detail of what will happen in the industry and how the company will react up to the position of uh, new trendsetters who say, usually when I pitch to an investor, I only need a napkin to flesh out the idea. So... Uh, when I want to approach UBC, uh, what is the right depth of detail that a VC expects uh, when I pitch a new trend? 
stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Um, I agree with this idea of a napkin because you have to be able to pitch your new idea and your company in one sentence or a few sentences. Like you're having a drink at the cocktail bar, you're going to meet someone for one minute and it has to be precise and understandable by everyone so that... Uh, Even if it's a, a, a joke of the technology or the market of the complexity of it, in, in one sentence, someone has to be able to say, okay, I understand what he does and what, or what he wants to do. But at least, and this is a really great exercise for, for tech companies, especially deep tech, when you have a lot of complexity in what you're doing. But in the end, when you're able to do that with a napkin, it's really great. And I would say you have to go deeper and deeper depending on the interest of the of the VC. You can really start with a 10-slide executive summary and say, okay, this is what I want to do, how I want to do it in very few words. Are you interested or no? And, uh, and usually if people are interested, they're going to say, okay, give me some more details or let's do a conf call, let's do a Zoom meeting or anywhere, anything like that. And you can go deeper and deeper. So I would, I would go by layers, like uh, some sort of an onion. You just... Start with a very thin layer and then you go deeper. You don't have to produce a 300 pages business plan because nobody's going to read it in the VC world. <laughs> don't bother with that. Uh, just uh, uh, 20, 40 slides or 20, 40 pages of the of Word document is already a lot, it's already enough. And you have to cover different grounds, of course, like your IP, your the competition, the market, the tech, uh, the business model, the recruiting process, the people, the The venture, the venture numbers, like how much money do you want? What would be the type of valuation, cap table? All these things, but you can cover them in the second round when people understood what you wanted to do and ask and start asking very deep questions. The first part is really to catch their attention and say, okay, this is something new, this is something interesting, and I understood it, and I'm not just looking at, okay, I've, I've read 10, 20 slides, and I still don't understand what this is the purpose of this company. And it happens a lot in technology because you people tend to go where they are comfortable, and when you are coming from the academy, from the academia, when you're coming from science, you come back to science, and you want to show why your science is better than the other. And usually VCs don't really care about that because they know you're going to find a way to put it in a better position than the others. The question is more, what do you do with that and what kind of pain point or problem do you solve? So it's always a good start to say, okay, this is my problem, this is my solution. And if people understood at least that, it's already a great a great thing. And VCs are the same. VCs are going to spend a few minutes on your, on your slide deck and mostly young people, analysts or... Uh, or even intern sometimes. So they have to be able to understand in a few sentences what you do. And actually it's a great tool, as I said, because for customers, for partners, if they can repeat the same thing to other people, it's a great way for you for your marketing and communication. So one sentence is usually uh, a good one. And uh, and even if uh, 
people have, have to ask a lot of questions and the more questions they are, the more interested they are. So it's good to have questions back. If you have no question, you're always trying to understand, did I say everything and nobody has question or did they not understand everything? And so they don't want to ask questions because they're afraid to ask. just welcome the question and let people talk. <laughs> so basically it needs both um, when I understand you right. Uh, so on one hand, the entrepreneur must understand every single detail of uh, the direction he wants to go. Uh, so it's the homework, but uh, just taking then this pile of paper, throwing it on the VC table and say, look, I did so much work. Uh, it's enough for investment. It's not enough. So for approaching um, a discussion with a VC, it means uh, to really drill down from the top, uh, flesh out yes. the core messages that you can write on this uh, famous napkin. So in one sentence, uh, this is what my business is all about. And then in every subsequent meeting, putting more and more and more detail on the table, guided by the questions of the VCs. Is this picture one that you would approve? Yes. Yes, I completely approve that. Uh, it's a pyramid. You have to start with the tip of the pyramid and then go down. And VCs are going to ask more and more questions. They're going to go into details. Who do you plan to hire? What is your IP position? What is your competition? Oh, I've seen this market trend. I've seen that and that and that. So you have to be able to answer these questions. And so you have to do your work first and keep it in your bag and be able to get it out with, it, with the questions. And, uh, and this is a tiring work, I would say, because you cannot just say, okay, I have every question and every answer on one piece of uh, a book, a PowerPoint, everything. Just read it and come back to me. That's not going to work like that. They want to approve, they want to have their own questions. They have a process of learning. It's also a learning process as a VC. You're in front of someone who's going to teach you something about their technology, their competition, their vision of the world. And so you just have to learn and nobody learns the same way. So you just have to, to teach differently to different people, different speeds, different concepts, different ideas. You have some VCs who are going to be very interested in science. Some are going to be interested in the market approach. Some are going to be interested in competition and some in exit and so you'll have different type of answers and questions are you attractive because of the tech are you attractive because of your market approach because of your numbers your size your ip and you'll have this kind of discussion uh, which will show you uh, the vc uh, interested actually i'm fundraising for a cyber security company right now and i I'm, i see it because it's a very early stage company with a product which is still in the early uh, progress it's a prototype i'm really uh, much more interested in finding tech people or tech vcs than people asking me questions about the market traction and the development of the of the product and internationalization because this is so early that i cannot really answer the question with the right answers and so i'm i'm seeing that it fits much better with tech vcs who love the technology and say, okay, we can make a great product and a great company out of it. And uh, and in this case, uh, you have to try and, and fail. You talk to a lot of VCs and, and you see the ones that are responsive to this kind of approach are the ones who just are going to say, okay, uh, come back when you do 1 million euro revenue. And this is a very frequent answer. Yeah, it's a really nice company, come back in two years, three years, four years time when you start and, and it's already not done, but it's already growing fast. 
Right, that's another type of VC. So you you really have to to look into the different types of VCs and find the, the right for you. So it, so adapt to the situation. I think uh, putting it from coming from the other uh, other other direction, um, just throwing a sentence on a napkin probably is not sufficient. And say, okay, give me six hundred million dollars, and uh, I tell you in six yeah. months, so I can <laughs> put it together. <laughs> Let's look a little bit about the expectation management when companies start approaching. We see um, how many deals per year were you looking at before you made the decision? Is it just uh, that you are sitting bored on your uh, in your office, uh, wait for the one entrepreneur once a year that comes along, uh, and then you're happy to invest because uh, just you own the opportunity on the market, or do you get hundreds and thousands of pitch decks on your table? Yeah, so I think we should start with the dirty secret of VCs, which is we invest when we have money. <laughs> and so some of the time you will have VC in front of you and they don't have the money in their hands. They pretend, they say they will have it, but they don't have it because they're fundraising their own fund, because the last fund is ending, because of whatever reason, uh, market situation, they were, they're waiting for a few exits to show that it's a, it's a good activity and people should invest in their funds. And sometimes you're just going to be in front of VCs that they don't have the money. So the first thing is to be able to check and be sure that they have enough capital available and they can invest. Otherwise, you can just be uh, pitching to them and whatever the, the success of your company and the beauty of your concept, you're not going to get money because they don't have it. So this is a, a bit of the dirty secret of the VCs. Uh, they first need to get the whole money so that they can invest it, in, it inside to you. So that's uh, the first part. Second part is you really want to see the most possible uh, opportunities because you don't want to miss out the ones that you're going to like. And you're, yeah, VCs are like, a, let's say, a top models, uh, which you really pick one out of hundreds of companies. So they just really want to uh, be sure they haven't missed out some some possibilities. So they're going, we're going to go out and look for deal flows, uh, conferences, trade shows, uh, networking, uh, academia, uh, of course, uh, direct contacts with uh, from from people. You can always send your 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 pitch deck to uh, a VC uh, that you found out on LinkedIn or through your network or in conferences. It's it's always a welcome uh, way of of uh, reaching out. So the only problem is that how do you become this one out of a hundred? That's a very really tough question. And uh, as I said try to under identify what this kind of VC is looking for. Is it looking for tech? Is it looking for growing companies? Is it looking for uh, new trends or just, uh, uh, let's say, best in class instead of first in class? That's something you really should try and see so that you see if you fit with this uh, kind of uh, uh, idea. And um, the, more, the more I was doing my VC uh, experience, the more I was thinking, okay, Actually, you should not be reaching out to hundreds of VCs. You're going to waste your time. So maybe you should just try and focus on the few tens of VCs that are going to be in your in your window of opportunity and your target group as a, as your customers. Actually, they are your first customers. The VCs when you go and pitch them, and you don't have a product, and you just have a tech. Your customer is your VC. So you just go and pitch something, and you have to focus on your target group and what you're going to sell to them. So try to find the right partners. And then uh, how to become the one in 100, I would say uh, you really have to uh, stand out. So highlight the trends, highlight the tech, highlight the, dev stadium, the development stage, highlight 
what makes you different from the others. And it's always good to look around. It's always good to try and see, okay, who are my competitors in this field? What are the other trends? Why are these people choosing to invest in this kind of activity and I'm uh, in other kind of industry? What is the reason for that? And how can I address their concern about it? If, I, if I'm a deep tech investor and I've been investing in, let's say, renewable energy, I might not do some new biotech thing. So why is that? Is that because they're not comfortable with the industry? Or is that because you have to have some sort of uh, uh, understanding of the technology and they are not good enough? And so it's, it's a, a way of trying to fit into the right boxes uh, and then reach the right partner in the team also. If you go and, and go and, and talk to the wrong partner in the VC team, you might just get the wrong answer because you didn't you were not talking to the right person. So it's always good to see, uh, to say, okay, I'm going to, to contact this type of person. What are the deals that he made recently or in the past? What are the industries is, uh, uh, is uh, the most uh, uh, experienced with or, or accustomed to? Because uh, uh, sometimes it's really easy. You've done a good deal in, uh, let's say, heart disease. You, want, uh, you have some expertise there. You want to keep going in this type of area. You've done a good deal in cancer. You want to keep going in cancer. That's uh, and that's just for biotech. It's the same for the deep tech industries. So just try and look at the at the right one. And uh, in the end, to be this one percent uh, of success, you really have to uh, show that you're going to um, uh, let's say outperform the others. You have uh, ten other projects very sexy on the table of the VC which one is going to be selecting, selected the one which is going to be uh, the most attractive to the, to the partner at the VC. So you have to, to be credible and, and dream enough. And dream, I, so that's, I'm going back to this thing. Like it's in the end, you have to make the pe people dream and say, okay, I want to invest in this company because I want to dream with them and I share their dream. And, and so that's a tough exercise. It's a tough exercise because you don't really have anything else to show at first. And then when it's a, when it's later stage, it's a bit different. It's much easier to raise money when you're doing like five, 10 million euros of revenue, you're 20, 30, 50 people. It's another game. The, 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 the first part is the, is the hardest. But that's not, a, that's not why you should be discouraged. You should start. It's really fun. <laughs> So there, was, there was an interesting point in your explanation uh, that I would like to dig a little bit deeper into. Um, yeah. I get many, um, I support scientists and um, very often I get this opportunity on the table, which uh, tells a story like, uh, look, Christian, we're running out of money in two months. Uh, let's start approaching VCs. So yeah. we need money in two months. Um, this then leads to a situation that uh, basically the scientists don't know the VC world and they don't they didn't have any first contact with VCs and start throwing out the pitch deck to hundreds of VCs, and which yeah. means uh, they must start with the process of uh, finding out what VCs want when they are in desperate need of money, um, and. When I ask them, why are you doing that? Uh, the answer is, well, um, someone told us uh, when we talk too often with the same VC, we get blacklisted. So uh, we don't start talking with them. And uh, my opinion is, uh, 
the right approach for an entrepreneur would be to uh, start talking with VCs, learning to understand them, uh, what they are looking for, what the sweet spot is on the market, uh, in which tech they invest before they actually need money or before they actually start uh, start a company. So that uh, when they come into situation, they say, okay, I have a great idea, I have a great company. And uh, now it's the right time to invest in that company because it's going to be big that they already did this marketing phase. So my question to you is, uh, does a blacklist really exist in the VC world uh, where they just check off, okay, this person contact me 20 times uh, without any deal, so I don't talk to this person anymore? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host Matt Heslin brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. It's not really a blacklist, but it's of course not a great sign when you go yeah, and you keep going back to the VC every six months or a year because you haven't really raised money, you haven't done what you were saying you would do. So that's a bit, uh, that's a bit of a bad uh, negative uh, uh, signal for the VC. So yeah, I agree you should not come back to every three months, six months, nine months to the VC and say, hey, now I'm raising money again and I want your, <laughs> I want your, I want your money. That's not a good sign at all, of course. But uh, but I agree with you on this side on this point. Like you should not stop fundraising when you think you need the money. Actually, you should be fundraising all day. That's uh, something that's always a pros and going process uh, because it's the future of your company. How am I going to raise money in the next twelve months, eighteen months, twenty four months? So it's always good to uh, to have this in mind and say, okay, what I'm going to do and sell and say in the next uh, in the next uh, months or quarters, uh, so that I can raise the money and show what I've, what I've done. Um, I, uh, I think that uh, the best way to start would be to reach out to a VC and say, look, I'm going to raise money in six months from now, but since I know you're in my area, I know you're in my expertise, I know you might be the right VC, let me pitch this idea to you and have just a, a nice uh, confidential talk and see what you think about it. VCs always love this thing to be in front of the of the companies of the project so that if they really like it they can some sort of preempt it because this is saying this is a competition also between VCs mm-hmm. and and it's giving advice uh, business and it's always good for the networking and you get some sort of a feedback of what are your weak points or strong points and where you should improve so that you can really meet the standard so it doesn't need to be a two hours meeting. It can just be a 30 minutes call saying, okay, I'm doing this and that and that. Where should I improve my uh, my pitch or my company so that I can present it to you officially in three months, six months, nine months? And then if, it really, if the VC really likes it, it's going to, to tell you to come back and work with him to refine it. Because if he, if he, if he really wants to invest at one point, it will help you find the, the right uh, 
position the right uh, uh, business model, the right team, the right uh, person, uh, people, and the right way to pitch it, so that as, at the end he can invest in the company. So that's always a good thing to start a bit earlier, not to ask for money, but to ask for advice. And uh, and, and it's always, of course, a bit of ego. You know, it's always nice to be asked for to give an advice. Uh, <laughs> as always, this ego thing in the world, so you should not uh, you should not uh, forget it. It's uh, you ask people for their advice if it's nicely done and not too uh, cumbersome. People are going to give it to you, and it's really valuable. Actually, I think uh, advice are very, as a, as a best free thing you can give to people, even good or bad. But you have to take them in and try to understand why they give you this advice. Uh, and if even some bad advice uh, can be very profitable because you can understand why it's bad and find the reason why and find an explanation to say, okay, this advice was not good or this this idea was not good. But at least uh, it's, it helped me try and think and refine my my way of pitching and presenting my company. So basically distilling it down into a process, it would mean um, that when someone starts a company, uh, it absolutely makes sense to reach out early to VCs, uh, not with the question for money, but with the question for directional advice. So to yeah. approach them in a way to say, look, I'm about starting that uh, company. You hear a lot from the industry because you are positioned in that industry, which means the entrepreneur should do a little bit of uh, due diligence work himself or herself, yeah. finding out exactly. which VCs are working in that area and then just be bold with the approach uh, and not shy back for uh, virtual being blacklisted because yeah. uh, he approaches a VC Uh, without the wish to get money so exactly and, and, uh, and i think it is something that mm, uh, you should not be shy about you should be really open to discuss with a lot of different people vcs of course and also actually this is something that is really hindering the development of startups this kind of secrecy like i want i don't want to talk about my tech because i might get copied i might have some Does not happen that way. <laughs> you go, you discuss with people, uh, and maybe you'll you'll give some uh, some information to your competitors. But the time the process is understand it, uh, and if you have some IP or some patents, it's really hard to get to get around, especially for a small company which does not really exist on the market, and you're not really threatened by that. So you should really be able to say, okay, let's talk about it and see what we can do, um, because it's going to give you much more than you than you gave away. So uh, I encourage uh, entrepreneurs to speak about it uh, openly and not be so secretive and say, okay, I have the next Google, but I don't want to talk about it because we're going to, to, to just steal my ideas. It doesn't happen that way. Mostly, uh, it's not the idea, the value. The value is putting the work in. <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, in. I once saw the 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 picture that success is five uh, percent idea and ninety five percent hard work. So exactly. having an idea is a great thing, but uh, if someone doesn't put in the hard work, and that sometimes might be a mode by itself. So a team that is executing on an idea might not be better yeah. like others, but they are just sitting down every day for twelve hours and getting the work done. Um, coming back to this, uh, when is the right time to approach UVC? Uh, so basically, every time is the right time to approach UVC with the right question. So uh, asking the question of advice is always very welcomed. But uh, when a company officially starts fundraising, coming back after three years with no progress uh, would be a little bit neck-breaking, I think. Is that uh, uh, yes, right? Yes, it is. 
Yeah, that's the problem of reaching out to a VC with a business plan and saying, okay, I'm going to raise, let's say, 3 million euros, and it does not happen, and you come back two years, three years later, and you say, okay, I didn't raise the money, I didn't do what I was was, was willing to do. And uh, and actually, VCs, they keep track of it. So they have the former business plan, and they, and they bring it back and say, okay, why should I believe you now since you haven't done what you were saying? So uh, it's always a difficult um, uh, exercise to say, okay, I haven't done what I was telling you two or three years ago, but I've done different things, even better, maybe not. But at least you have to be able to explain why it didn't pan out and why the the, the success that you're preaching now uh, is different, or you have to be more uh, confident into the, into this plan, new plan than the former one. And yeah, you can really uh, be uh, be uh, disappointed and uh, and say, okay, I don't trust this person anymore because he told me that it didn't happen, and now it's this. But we all know that you're not going to make 100% of your business plan. If you do 50% already, that's already great. If you do 5% of your business plan, that's a huge problem. And maybe you have to explain why you didn't do it and explain the pivoting, why it's better now, and have some really strong proof that it was a good choice. So when you don't succeed in fundraising, it's not the end of the world. But when you don't really achieve your business plan, that uh, starts to be a problem. And then you really have to think about what can I do to try and improve the, the situation. And mostly when you don't find money within VCs, you have to go through business angels, subsidies, customers, and maybe try to pivot and do something which is more, which is less uh, capital intensive. Because if you don't find the capital, you have to find another way to work. Yeah. So maybe go into services more, go into consulting, go into partnerships with other with other customers or partners. Uh, find other ways. Just be flexible and not and do not say, okay, if I don't get the money from VCs, I just close it down and go do something else because that's not the right approach. Should be able to show to say and say, okay, I want to have different opportunities, different op- options in front of me, and this is the name of the game. If you just have one option, it's going to be really hard for you to negotiate anything. So um, just try to have different options. Uh, of course, the best, the, the best uh, ideal case would be to have a lot of VCs in front of you and be able to negotiate the best term sheet and the best terms. <laughs> but uh, in the real world, sometimes you have to choose between one VC, uh, some subsidies, uh, a partnership or a few customers and say, okay, how, what can I do? How can I define this thing and, and find the right combination of, uh, of options? They are not exclusive. They are not mutually exclusive. So you can try and combine them in the best way to to be able to defend a bit your position, your valuation, your your company, because this is a, a huge point in the end. So I think the key messages for me: there are um, being open and honest, not shying away from uh, talking to VCs, um, but being clear on on what you want. So it's never a problem um, to talk about ideas and asking for advice. Uh, and uh, not only approaching VCs uh, when there is a need, an immediate need for money. So this, uh, yeah, it's uh, because you, you cannot feel like you're just a money pipe and you're just draining money to the to the entrepreneur. He's going to come and say hello. I need a few millions, and then he, he goes and he comes back two years later. So okay, now I need <laughs> sign here, transfer there, and we see us exactly. five years again. <laughs> And see you again. And yeah, that's part of the, the idea to try and select the right VC for the for your company. Mm. They, they have a huge network, these VCs, of course. They're, they're experts in their field. And so they know a lot of things. They know a lot of solutions. So they can give you very great advice like, oh, you should go talk to this type of people for your subsidies. You should talk to this guy in this industry. 
And that's also some sort of marketing and, and commercialization of your product already. Even if it's just a tech or an idea, you're already commercializing your idea. So you have to find people who like it, who want to help you do it. So yeah, it's a, it's a good thing. And and yeah, the worst thing is you're going to say a no, to receive a no thing. I don't have enough time. So no thanks, come back when you're ready. And the best thing is, okay, let's discuss it and I might help you do it. And if I really like it, uh, you'll be in my uh, little uh, papers and I'll be waiting for you to be ready to invest money. So, so I know we should be respected and not counted with hundreds of emails. And uh, But mm -hmm. this me but this means uh, for entrepreneurs that it's really hard work uh, to do proper market research on the VC world, to yeah. talk with VCs far before they need money to get their advice, information in, uh, travel to conferences, uh, engage in conversations, which really means it's uh, work. So this is work that must be integrated in a startup uh, yeah. far, far before there is an actual need of money. And the companies who don't do that, who start this process when they are in the process of fundraising, most likely will miss because uh, they, they missed this, this process beforehand. Is that a, a correct picture? Yes, uh, of course, if you have a great tech and you're in the perfect trend and you just come and say, okay, I, I need this money in six months that everybody has a lot of money and they want to invest, you, you're going to succeed. I won't say it's not, not feasible. It's just much easier if you started with a few VCs that you know and that are following your company and just come back and say, okay, now my my fund, my my round is starting. Uh, how do you want to invest? What do you want to invest? And, it's, and the hardest thing is to find the first... Uh, investment uh, leader or co-leader and when you have this investor you can build on it and you can try and, and do this kind of uh, aggregation of, uh, of different parties uh, but yeah the first part is to find the right one so you can spend uh, quite some time trying to find him and if, once when you have it it's It's like why well, it's like um, something has just been broken and everything goes goes away, goes right in the right direction. It's okay now that I have my first commitment. The other one is coming. The third one, the fourth one, and everything goes in the right way. So it's a bit of management of uh, who is going to be the first, and it's always difficult for VCs to be the first. It's much easier to be the second or the third. And so okay, I'm investing with this type of people. So yeah, so you also have to find sometimes a, a good syndicate of uh, people that are going to work together and be convinced together because yeah we know we're going to invest once but we know we're going to invest twice three times four times maybe and so we need to have the, the capability to uh, defend the positions and so it's better when you have a few vcs around the table than just one uh, if it's a very big one of course one is enough but even this thing now you see that you were mentioning that in europe you have bigger and bigger investment larger rounds like uh, tens of millions of euros for the for seed rounds That's what's something that we didn't see 10 years ago, even That's five true. years ago. We, and now it's coming. And, and you see, VCs are getting bigger, but they, they are making bigger rounds. So they still want to be three, four, five around the table. And they don't invest two or three million anymore. They invest five, 10, 15 million. But but they do that together so that they can really uh, be stronger together. They, they know this, uh, this idea of, of being uh, many VCs around the table, even if it's a hard work for the entrepreneur to manage all these people, all these VCs, it's much uh, it's much more comfortable for VCs to be to be with with you know, other investors like them. 
But this work must, uh, so everybody who wants to, to get VCs on board to scale the company faster must appreciate this work. There's no way around it. So it's uh, not yeah. an entirely transactional system where uh, the yeah. contact is just for uh, transferring the money. It's really about building relationships. And uh, yeah, Exactly. And, uh, and I would say that uh, when you're an entrepreneur, you, your take is your product, your investors are your customers, and you just should do the same, like, okay. Talk to your customers, try to see what they wait, what they want, what they're waiting for, where they are, et cetera, et cetera, and try to find the few that are going to be the, the nice uh, niche of the mind, nice fit for you. Uh, because you don't have anything else. You, you, you just have an idea, a technology, some patents, a bit of a prototype maybe. So you're going to see your customers all day long and the customers are the VC. And then you're going to talk to the industry and see to try to prove that uh, it's a workable product. So, yeah, so you do, do your work and, and take your uh, and take the time to do that. Uh, actually, I think uh, the tech is not the most essential thing in, the, in, the, in a startup. In the end, it's um, the time you spend uh, trying to, to promote the idea and, and sell your product and your, and your, and your technology. Let's stay a little bit with these uh, either-or questions. Uh, I have another one uh, based on what you uh, were just saying. When I'm talking uh, with European founders, I very often, maybe it's just my perception, and that's why I ask the question if, uh, if it's just mine or if uh, you also agree to that, uh, I very often got uh, the impression from European founders that they are very tech-savvy. So in the techs and in the material, I see a lot of processes and uh, details of the product and how great the product is and what the product can achieve and how they can develop it and uh, make it better. And it's all about the product. When I talk with uh, American entrepreneurs, um, one example from my past is that one entrepreneur once told me, look, my friend, uh, all you need is a vision. Then you find free friends and talk them into founding a company with you. Then you talk to a few VCs and get your first 20 million into the company and then you figure it out. So um, <laughs> that's the US way, yes. yes. <laughs> Not the same in Europe, unfortunately. How, how, do, how, do, how do you see it? Which is the stronger story? <laughs> Uh, I think uh, it's right in the US, you can really raise a lot of money on a vision because mm -hmm. they know you're going to find the people to get the work done and find the right uh, approach, etc. Much more in terms of, okay, I want to have a vision and then we're going to figure out the tags, uh, hiring the right people, doing the right uh, approach for the market, etc. etc. It's not the same in, in Europe and maybe it's because of the entrepreneurs, maybe it's because of the VC, I would say it's both. I would say um, VCs want to be sure that it's the right tech and the best tech and it's going to be better than the rest. And so they, they want to go into that founders, they master this thing and they really want to and love to talk about it. So they want to talk about it and they're much less comfortable talking about the vision because it's more of a marketing approach, a, a company approach and a scientific approach. Uh, so I would say it's an evolving thing. I think like 20 years ago in the US, it was much closer to what we were doing now. So I think we still have this 20 years gap with the US. Um, it's narrowing a bit because uh, communications are faster. People are moving a lot between these two, these two areas. So it's easier, but we don't, still don't have the same amount of money. We still don't have the same successes. So we still have to do a lot of things in Europe so that we can catch up. But, um, but I, I see more and more people trying to say, okay, I have a tech, let's try to find the vision. 
and combine both because I know I will have to rely on my tech to convince European VCs, but we're still going now into this vision thing where, okay, uh, I, I know that I need to be able to sell something which is completely uh, unreal for the moment and will become real in the future. And some people are going to buy or not buy on this on these uh, ideas. So it's changing a bit, but yeah, yeah I would say uh, it's cultural between the US and Europe, and I would say also it's an evolving process. So uh, I'm not sure if someone were to try and find base money in, in Europe with a vision, just a vision. If he's not a serial entrepreneur with a huge success, not sure it would be so able and we able to to raise a lot of money in in. in all over Europe, maybe a bit more in Israel, for sure in the US. But uh, yeah, uh, that's why we we come back to tech, and we're much more basic in the in the basics of uh, of the of the company. Uh, one day it will change, maybe when we have enough serial entrepreneurs who just can pitch and say, okay, I've done this and that, now I have this vision, give me the money and let's move on. And people will, will follow that because uh, because of the success of the of the person in front of them. I, th I think this is, the, this is, in my opinion, the key words that uh, you were saying. It depends on the entrepreneur. I think when Jeff Bezos approaches uh, a VC and say, well, I have an idea. I put 20 billion on that. Uh, would he want to join me? Maybe it's a different story and he just needs a vision. Uh, yeah. Compared to the first time entrepreneur, 20 years old with the first company, no track record, uh, maybe it uh, needs a little bit of a different approach. So as you say, when we have more entrepreneurs with a track record, maybe the, the culture changes a little bit. Yes, exactly. Uh, and the power changes. You know, when you're a VC in front of a successful entrepreneur, you don't behave the same thing than just the first time. Just new tech, PhD, postdoc, etc. And it's normal. It's life, you know. Someone who has already done a successful exit or a few, of course, you're going to give him much more credit about the next idea than before. It's based on experience and and, and money. But uh, in the end, this is, I think, why also you can just come now in the US and say, okay, I have a vision, I have an idea, I have the right team to do it. Just give me the money and we'll execute. And people believe in that because it's already been done. Uh, yeah. But that's, uh, that's the way it works. And we hope we'll have enough uh, huge successes in Europe so that we can see these uh, sale entrepreneurs come back and just not stop after one company and say, okay, now I'm going to enjoy life and, and just be a nice business angel and that's it. Uh, sometimes I think in Europe you have this idea about, about yeah okay I've done a bit of money with my first company I'm just going to work, to live on that be a business angel uh, have a good life and not go for the next one or the next one and when you look at the big names of course you have the ones which who had a big success with the first company but you have also the, the Elon Musk of the world it was the second third fourth company which was a huge success even if the first one were very successful at first. The next one were game changers. So, so you can say, okay, what, I, what would have happened if Elon Musk after the first company had said, okay, I had a few millions, I'm good, let's retire and do something else. No, he went back because he was dreaming something more than just money. He was dreaming about doing things. I think entrepreneurship is not like playing the lottery. When I look at the the most successful entrepreneurs in the world, like Elon Musk or um, Jeff Bezos, um, They just play the game forever. It's, I think, uh, a lifestyle and a mindset that they yes. just tapped into. They like it. They love it. Uh, when I also look at uh, investors like uh, Peter Thiel, for example, it's just uh, 
one investment and one company and one founding process after the other. I think it's more a lifestyle. And um, I don't know if people who approach it like playing the lottery who say, okay, I create one company and then I have a big hit and then I have a good life afterwards. I don't think, I don't know if that really creates success. What's your opinion? Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Coaching Conversation 2024. This podcast is 100% dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial intelligent strategies to help leaders drive greater teamwork, collaboration, cooperation, greater attitudes, better motivation, coaching career development, just to name a few. I hope you'll check out our podcast. I would agree with you, but I'm not in the position to say, okay, what would you do if you were to get, let's say, two, five, 10 million euros? Would you say, okay, I'm coming back and working hard or I'm just enjoying my life and buying a, one of one of few uh, apartments this and there and going on vacation trips. I really think it depends on the characters of people. And I think mm-hmm. that the American character on this side, it's much more, uh, I live with with my work, my work is myself. And so I, I, I enjoy this thing. And France, we still have this old thinking about work as some sort of punition, punishment, uh, some sort of a, a bad thing. And it's deep in our culture, actually, because... Uh, that's a, the idea of work is it comes from a world which was a, some sort of a torture in Latin. So it's, it's not really it's not really a positive world. And during the Middle Age, it was a negative world to work. You, mm-hmm. When you were noble, when you were the higher strength uh, people, you didn't work and you didn't want to work because it was really badly perceived. So, yeah, so I think there's a bit of cultural uh, background in this That's area. True. And also, I think uh, a bit of what's my ambition. And I think this huge successful entrepreneurs in the US, they have an ambition, which is not about money. It's about changing the world. Even it's a bit of a too much used world, like I want to change the world, make the world a better place, et cetera, et cetera. Deep inside, it's it's a belief that a lot of people have. They, they want to change the world, make it a better place and make money at the same time. You don't have to be, uh, to have opposite sides of this thing. Yeah, money is, money when is... you make it, Sorry. It's just a driver. It's just a driver of, of success. So they don't really care about it. That's why they're giving it back uh, hugely because it's, they know it's too much. Uh, when you look at Bill Gates and he's done a huge amount of money and then it's giving it back. So what does it mean giving it back? It's just realizing that it's too much. And so I have to give it back to the community, to the world, because I want to change things. And it's not just keeping it on from my, because it's way too much. And I think yeah, they would, by them, they would agree on that and say, okay, and that's why you have this Warren Buffett initiative, like uh, giving 50% of my fortune to, to the rest of the world, even 50%, it's a, it's a low number when you have billions of, and billions. But uh, in a way, this is, this is the idea. Yeah. I don't really care about the money. I care about the success and from the success comes money. And that's just a driver. And I, I think they would get 10 times less. I don't think they would change their behavior and the way they, and the way they work. They would just be uh, a bit uh, more uh, 
concern about uh, am I treated fairly concern regarding the value creation? Because of course uh, you start with an idea, you start with a concept, you work a lot, and then you want to be rewarded uh, proportionate to what you've, you've brought to the company and the world. So that's always this question of ego coming back. How much am I worth? <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's true. What you're saying probably is really a cultural difference. When I look at the self-help books and uh, books I've read from entrepreneurs from, from the United States, Mostly, they talk a lot about uh, finding your area that you're passionate about and uh, learn some skills that um, you need in this area and create a company and serve society. And um, on the other hand, they view money as a tool, not as an end goal. They just say, okay, if you have a vision, you need some money, then it's the tool that makes the vision uh, happening. Uh, but it's not a goal to have a lot of money. And um, looking at uh, the lifestyles of the, the, the great entrepreneurs, I mean, of course, they have a high net worth, but uh, in relation to their net worth, they live pretty frugal. So it uh, really looks like yes. uh, money is just, they use it, they use it to make uh, their vision happen, but uh, it's not the goal to become rich. And when I talk with Europeans, probably it's a little bit different. Like you said, uh, it's the goal to have a good life and spend 50 years without needing to work as a punishment. Yeah. I think it goes back, I haven't mentioned that, but I have a PhD on philosophy on capitalism and, it, and I've done a quite a lot of work about the, the origin of capitalism. It goes back to these ideas from Weber at the first uh, decades of the 20th century that uh, capitalism is from a Protestant idea and the entrepreneur does it for in terms of a religious action. It's just to, to make something good out of it. And the profit at the end, the money at the end, is just a side effect of it, just a, 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 some way to measure the success of it and the, and the success of the benefit. And they have to reinvest it in the company. So they don't use it for their own consumption. It's not for luxury. It's a process and something that they reinvest to keep the company growing and to make it good. And at the, at the end, and you could read, Weber, it's a very great book about the origin of, uh, of capitalism with mm -hmm. Protestant uh, ethic. It's uh, you, there is this uh, idea about uh, Benjamin Franklin, who was at the end of his life a very successful man for, for his time, very very rich, even if he had slaves and it's controversial now. <laughs> that's another story. Um, he was just uh, really happy about what he did for his country, for his city, for the people he employed. He wasn't happy about the money he made and the amount of money. But he was the Benefit, positive actions he made with the human society. So that there was this idea of common good at the end, which still is around the, every action that we do. It's not about getting rich by uh, by yourself. It's also contributing to the common good of the world. And capitalism was a way to say, okay, you can do both. You can target money and also do some good things thanks to the exchange. So just closing the parenthesis about the origin of the of capitalism, but this is truly something that exists in the, in the US. I think a bit less in Europe because it's between Protestant and uh, and Latin. So <laughs> Latin world would more this most see money as a as a bad thing. <laughs> so that's a, that's something that that is has to be taken into account also in the way we manage it and uh, and develop our companies. Yeah, there's there's also in the Bible, I think, uh, a quote that is very often misquoted. It's uh, money is evil, but I think the quote is uh, the love of money is evil. And so it's not basically mm -hmm. money, uh, but uh, putting emotions towards money, which comes back to what you say with the United States attitude, uh, like yeah. treat it like a tool, it's nothing. It's just you, you use it like uh, any other tool. Like a screwdriver. Exactly. Let's come a little bit back to the to the um, to the M and A world. 
Um, yeah. I got I got my training in public companies, and uh, mostly whenever I was involved in um, drawing up business plans and calculating investment cases, um, the preferred holding period was forever. So we had these endless discounted cash flow calculations uh, with for the next hundred years. So it was really building something lasting. Then I switched into the life science world and had the pleasure to start working with Innovati Spinout, which was uh, very well financed. Uh, Nomura, for example, was on board. So it was a 40 million financing round back in 2006. And there, the first time I learned the term that VCs need an exit. And I said, there, I said, why, why do they need that? Let's build a company. So it's, it's forever. <laughs> uh, can you explain a little bit what an exit is and why this key to success for VCs? Yeah, actually, actually, this is really important to understand that when you're an entrepreneur, because you have to be able to think like a VC and uh, and realize what they're looking for. They, they want to be able to give back the money to the people that invested in their own funds. So they have a small, definite period of time, which would be eight years, 10 years, 12 years sometimes a bit longer if you if you succeed. And you have very specific corporate VCs or VCs related to banks, whether it's like a forever fund, it's a, a evergreen fund. So if you can, this is quite different. It's really specific. So I'm just going to focus on the one with normal standard 10-year fund. You have to provide them with an idea of an exit when you talk to them because you can have the greatest idea if the, if the, if the exit time is in 50 years from now, I'm going to tell you, okay, 50 years, I'm retired, the world has changed 10 times, maybe it's going to make a lot of money, but that's not for me. Um, I want to be able to find a way to exit my investment in five to seven to eight years. And that's the good side of it. Sometimes it's three to five years. For growth stage companies, you, you want to come in and get exit three years later. And for LB, for leverage buyouts, it's even shorter sometimes. They do that every 18 months or every two years. So you have to be able to provide the, 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 the exit strategy, not say, okay, I have this type of partner already willing to, to, to acquire me in two years at this price. It would be too, <laughs> too easy. But just saying, okay, I, I have this type of target for my acquisition. If I'm going to do acquisition, I want to do an IPO at this stage, and this is the valuation that could be coming out of this IPO. Or if it's just financial play, uh, I have a, a solution for you to exit in three to five years with this multiple because I'm going to bring my revenue to this type of value, my EBITDA or blah, blah, blah. With multiples, you can do some sort of a, of a secondary transaction. But you have to provide that to the VC so that the VCs understand that you know their constraints, you know what they're looking for, and you and they can make their own calculation and say, okay, if I'm going to sell this company 50 million euros in five years, how much is it worth now? Uh, what are the risks? What is, uh, what is the drive? And then they can provide a, a, some sort of a, of a value. You could have the best company if you don't see a a great profitable exit at the end as a VC, you will say, okay, just do it as an association or something else, because if I don't make money out of it, why would I invest? And that brings another question, which is even more important. Do you really in VCs if your goal is not to exit them from the company? If you don't want to have them uh, for a short period of time, but you want really long-term investors or other type of uh, financing, maybe you should go in another direction. VCs are really for this uh, fast-growing companies where they need a lot of cash. I've seen companies, uh, they, when you were digging into the business plan, 
actually you, you discover that they didn't really need the money, but they wanted to have the money so because it was nice to raise money and talk with VCs and stuff. But in the end, I was like, okay, you need a few hundred of thousand euros. Why are you bothering yourself doing this? But yeah, because we want the competitors, the world, etc. They want us to raise a few million euros, but they didn't need it. And so the, the answer was, if you don't need the money from VCs, don't spend your time and your energy to go talking to them. Try to do it differently. It's not a shame to not raise money from VCs. And it's even a better success if you can make a great company with your own money and your own customers, your development. Congratulations to you because you didn't need the money. At one point, you might go and say, okay, I want to accelerate. I want to get more. And my just my organic growth rate is not huge enough. Okay, fine. But but it doesn't, you don't need to go directly to the VC every time and you can find other ways if you want to go there in different areas. And if you really think it's going to be your company forever, just be clear and say, okay, I'm, uh, I'm, I might have to exit you by myself and this is going to be the price and that's what's going to be, that's what it's going to take. But usually VC wants uh, M&A or IPOs. This is the most profitable right uh, things for them to exit. When uh, an entrepreneur comes and says, I'm going to buy you out in three years from now, it's going to be difficult because you know it's going to be a hard discussion at the end, even harder than at, uh, than at the beginning because uh, after that, it's real money from the entrepreneur to buy you out or uh, debt from banks and it's not really the same game. So that's not the preferred exit. It's mostly uh, finding someone who wants to really buy the whole company or, or do an IPO with the company. So that's what you should uh, at least have somewhere in your pitch deck. How do we exit from this thing? Where, what are the targets? What, what is the way? Is it three years, five years, seven years? And mostly we want to understand what the entrepreneur wants, not what the VC wants. We know what we want, but we want to know what the person in front of us wants to do. And don't lie about it. If you want to do a 10, 20 years in your company, just say it and try to find the way to do it. But don't go and say, okay, I'm going to exit you in five years, but actually I don't want to exit the company. I don't want to do it because it's going to create a lot of frustration and a lot of problems in the end uh, because you kind of commit to that and you'll have in your shareholders agreement uh, a different article saying, we can drag you along if we want to sell the company and blah, blah, blah. And after X years, we can start an MA process, et cetera. So you have to be really clear about it that uh, it's it's something that you want to do. Uh, and of course, as always, uh, at the end of the price issue, if it's too low, if it's uh, not the right valuation, you can say, okay, I want to keep going. But this is a discussion with the acquirer. You can say, okay, we're selling only uh, 40% of the company or 60 or whatever. And I keep going for the next years because I think I can make even more money uh, later. I've seen people doing a lot of money, not on the first part of the project, but on the leverage buyout after that because they stayed in the, at the management and they reinvested in the company. And when it went very, uh, very successful uh, after the VC part, uh, it was uh, for them a huge success because they believed in the future of the company and they could stay longer. But VC will have to exit, so you have to find them a, a way to do it. And so, yeah, so Keep a part on your pitch deck, so exit strategy. What do you want to do? How do you want to do it to whom? And what kind of valuation you're looking for? So that, that means your recommendation is to really have a clear idea about an exit scenario for VCs and not yeah. just leave it open. And then also it should be uh, an idea for an exit scenario that is compelling for VCs. Uh, 
if it's not compelling for VCs, there is no need to approach them. So for example, uh, while you were speaking, I had some ideas in my mind. Uh, let, let, let's try it a little bit. So an exit scenario, how would it sound to you as a VC when you say, well, I sleep better with 10 more millions on my bank account. Can you please transfer it? And uh, you get the interest rate back. So would that be a compelling exit scenario? I don't think so. Uh, of, of course not. Of course not. Yeah, you have to be. After that, it's always a question about the perception of the risk. If it's really early stage, you want to do a times five, times 10, mm -hmm. times 20 maybe on the investment, which is a lot. Uh, when it's, um, let's say, series A, B or C, you can... You can say, okay, if I do a times two, three, four, it's all right. Mm -hmm. The risk is not that big and we already have some values on the, in the company because of customers, development, etc. So yeah, you can adapt the, the valuation expectation depending on your stage. But in the end, you have to show a number which is big enough so that the VC say, all right, uh, I want to invest in this one and not uh, any other one that I've seen in the last few months, so a few years. So yeah, so you have to be able to credibly say this company is going to be worth 50, 100, 500, 1 billion and, and be able to defend this idea and say, okay, if, it's, if everything goes well, I can say it's 1 billion. If it goes average, it's a few hundred. If it doesn't go well, it might be zero because we know it might be zero, but, but we could also sell it for the tech at a few tens of millions and then people will say, okay. Uh, on this kind of uh, strategy and approach, uh, we can give you 10, 20 million euros and try to develop your company. But this is really a question of uh, uh, how much risk do you perceive and how much money do you want in comparison to this risk. And a very funny thing is at the end of the VC world, when you're raising uh, hundreds of millions or billions of euros, it's it's not even a, a, a multiple of the money. They want to do 10% per year or 0.5 or some 1.5 because it's such a big amount of money. You're such a successful company that they're going, it's closer for them than an investment in some equity on the public markets or a real estate or stuff like that. So it's not even a startup anymore. It's just, let's say you were to invest in Uber right now, um, you would not. You would not say, okay, I want to. I want to invest and say I'm going to be sure to do a 10x because I know the valuation of the company is really high, and so I, I'm going to to have a very lower expectation, which is much better. So the higher the most successful you are, the lower the expect expectations are, and so in in the end, uh, the easier it is for you to raise money because you have a larger pool of people really to invest because of this uh, perceived uh, uh, investment uh, security. Yeah, there is always this S&P 500 ETF uh, hurdle rate, in my opinion, which lies between 10 and 15%. So it's rather safe to invest money in an S&P 500 ETF over 10 years uh, compared to a startup. And um, another value proposition, for example, a proposition for an exit would be uh, to say, well, I have this access to free key technologies in the market. Uh, it's rather new. I need 100 million to move it up. And when I look on the stock market on the Nasdaq, uh, companies who developed uh, technologies like that have a valuation between one to five billion dollars. So this is the aim. Would that be a compelling proposition? It's just made up picture, but would yeah. that be something yeah, yeah. that's compelling? Yeah, it is. It is actually. Um, and you really have to look at your competitors and say, okay, what is the valuation multiple of revenues or EBITDA? But mm -hmm. usually you mm -hmm. don't use EBITDA in startups because the more they spend, the happier we are sometimes. So they grow fast. So this is a very uh, um, 
unorthodox way, but it's been very successful for lots of companies to say, I don't want to be profitable over the next 10 years. I just want to grow my market share and, and become the market leader. So that works a lot and, uh, and VCs love it when it's credible. So you should really strive for becoming the number one in the market and not uh, being just another company. If you have... Yeah, if you if you're early enough, if your if your technology is good enough, you could do that. Or you can say, okay, I have a niche market. I'm a nice add-on, a nice technology, and I want to be acquired by a, a larger group because I'm going to provide them a lot of value. Uh, that's deep, really depending. Coming back to the point we were discussing, deep, that really depends on what is your goal, what is your vision, and mm. what can you achieve. Uh, I'm sure if you you were to create the new LinkedIn now, you could you could create it, but Since you would be the second mover, there's a huge network effect. Would it really work, or should you? How should you approach it? I'm not sure you wouldn't be that big compared to LinkedIn. You might find a nice niche about a specific job opportunity or type of people, but I'm not sure you could ever become the leader again. So that's something that you have to really understand and discuss and put into your vision because it's not going to be credible to say I'm going to replace LinkedIn. Oh, you have a very great technology and concept, and so everyone will be willing to hear about it. <laughs> Otherwise, it's so it would also be so it would also be understand your personality and the personality of your team first before reaching out to VCs for making a deal. Yeah. If you are yeah. not the type of uh, who who wants growth, who wants to have a grand vision, and who wants to lead an industry, probably uh, the case you have in mind is not the right case for a VC. So it's just uh, having yeah. a comfortable life is probably not a VC case. Exactly. And um, yeah, and I think, um, yeah, you really, if you're an entrepreneur and uh, and you have a dream, you really think to try and confront it to uh, what's around you and especially VCs because they might give you a very good uh, feedback in terms of, okay, I've seen five other companies with a similar kind of dream. Mm -hmm. Look at them and look at what they did and what happened to them. Because sometimes it's uh, it's much easier to go and talk to people and have their feedback about what you dream about and what you want to do because they have the experience. And even if you can do a lot of Googling and stuff and try to look at other companies on the internet, it's much uh, more efficient to talk to people and have their real-life feedback and see what's uh, what's really going on and adjust what is transpiring on internet uh, internet is a great thing but it's not the reality <laughs> it's um it's an image of the reality so we should be uh, to should try to take with a grain of salt what you read on internet because this is not the, the real truth of what's going on and it's always been worse or better depending on how you want to pitch your things on internet it's uh, it's never uh, that black or white in the, in the real world No, it's uh, what you say matches my experience that I got back in the 90s. So it's basically putting first the company together and have a look at what direction uh, the company can take and how the market evolves and approach investors only with a growth case. So basically, with a clear growth case, it makes sense to reach out to VCs. When I look these days at startup companies, I very often get the impression it's all about fundraising. So it's all about raising this round and the next round. And then you have incubation program, 200,000. And you have the next investment show on, on television. So sometimes I have the impression that founders... Uh, lose a little bit of uh, the contact to the customer and the reason what um, a company is all about. And the company is all about uh, putting a 
product together, putting it on the market, finding a customer. And when you want to unlock uh, tremendous growth and you have the compelling story, then approach a VC. Yeah, I agree with you. You should uh, actually after that, I, I agree with you, but uh, I have to to admit that uh, most of my investment were in the pharma world when you never really see a customer because it's so far away that you're going to have sold the company or do a did an IPO way before that. But sometimes you reach a patient. Um, it's a it's a biotech. It's a very long process. But yeah, in in a lot of other industries, uh, I agree with you completely. You should have some customers' feedback and even. Uh, uh, the greatest thing would be to have someone, a customer willing to help you develop your, your product. Mm -hmm. That's the best way for everyone to show that your product is needed is a customer telling you, okay, I'm going to help you through financing. And that's why I love these Kickstarter things mm -hmm. and these uh, crowdfunding things because you have the real feedback from your life people saying, okay, I want this product and I'm ready to pay in advance for it or for the idea, idea of it, even if it never, could never work. So that's a really great way to have a feedback. It's not recommending for every type of product, of course, because if it's B2B, if it's a really long-term development, you won't go on, uh, on Kickstarter and say, give me 100 million and I'll create a, a cure against cancer because I'm not sure that would be <laughs> something you could really... Uh, some people uh, do that. So uh, there are some yeah. crowdfunding platforms who picked it up. I don't think it's the right approach. I mean, for me, um, it must not, a customer must not be a, a consumer. So it can also, like I said, B2B, it can also be a pharma company. Yeah. But in the end, yeah. I think also um, um, a, a life science company or a drug development company needs to have some perspective uh, of the need of the pharma industry. Yeah, for sure. For sure, because there's other ones who are going to buy the company in the end or to the other ones who are going to be competing against. So you really have to have their feedback. And, and it's really interesting. Even I, I take the nose from VCs that has really interesting and, and, and important answers because they give you some sense of uh, direction and some sense of where, where you should improve and where you should, you should uh, stop improving and say, okay, I'm good enough. Um, I see uh, in a small company, I see as a success when investors stop asking questions about the technology. It's because you, you've passed this idea of, is the technology going to work? It's like, okay, now you have a few customers, you have a product, you're starting to sell it. What's your market uh, approach? What's your business model? What's your commercial scheme? What's your pricing? competition uh, on the market, etc. And they don't even talk about the tech anymore. It's just something of the past. It's done. It's uh, accepted. And this is a success when people say, okay, I don't really ask questions about the technology because we see the product and it works and it has customers. That's all right. It's, uh, it's uh, a way to say that the company has been evolving and now it's not about tech anymore. It's about how do you make it available on the market. And so, yeah, I, I would say, and I'm repeating myself, that the more you talk to the people around you, the better it is. And you should not be shy about yeah. it and you should really see and go and say, okay, uh, maybe this is my direct competitor, but it's a very interesting way to discuss with this people and see how they react. And of course, uh, they might react uh, saying, yeah, your product is not good enough or this is it and this, but at least you have the, the, the qualifications and the, and the weaknesses of your product. So that's also a good feedback to obtain. Now, if I think uh, VCs, business development in pharma and life science entrepreneurs should spend more time talking to each other without, just without having this uh, transactional uh, uh, or being transactional in mind all the time. Uh, 
business to consumer in my eyes is a little bit simpler because there is a lot of information on the internet already of consumer products, uh, what are consumers looking about uh, for, and there is a lot of market research available for free on the internet. When you look on the pharma industry, uh, I think the real needs are not very well documented because people just don't have time uh, to put that together and the needs are more complex. So uh, I think this can only be resolved with communication, sitting down with people and uh, exchanging information. What have you heard? What have I heard? And yeah. then structure the company accordingly. Yeah, I agree. But sometimes uh, people think about information as a value. So the information have a lot of value and so they keep it for themselves because they say, okay, I don't want to share it because I know what kind of uh, strategy or, or technology or things people are looking for. And so this is a very valuable uh, item and I want to keep it to myself so that I can market it or use it uh, on my own. So it's a, it's a very more, it's a very uh, yeah different way of thinking about it. Maybe because uh, the, Valuation impact is huge. The monetary impact is huge. When you know that a huge pharma looks for that, it has a huge value for the people who wants to sell this type of things to the pharma. When you know that the average customer wants to buy something for 100 euros, it's not, it's not that much of a value. Even if you have millions of people like him, uh, it's, not that, it's not that valuable and you cannot say it's the same way. So, yeah, but I would agree with you. Uh, we need to have more communication between farmers and, uh, and, uh, and VCs. Most VCs try to go and and try to get some money from the farmers so that they can invest in their own fund and have their feedback and their and their vision of the of the products and the technologies are developing. But yes, every every type of companies have their limits, so they can't invest in everywhere. But sometimes it's really interesting to listen to. Uh, presentations of big farmers and see what's well where, where they're going and what are the trends and then discuss with the business development guys or the scientists and to see what's really going on in there uh, so yeah that's a really interesting uh, interesting uh, way of getting information but unfortunately when vcs have to uh, decide between spending time on transactions uh, making deals exiting companies following companies and time for communication to try to get new information and have some some type of new feedback they decide on the first part because this is what they're paid for this is what they do and so it's a bit like entrepreneurs you say entrepreneurs are just not looking far away because they always have their everyday problems to solve in the company it's a bit like the same for the vcs they have their everyday business to do raise funds for their own funds, invest, invest the money, exit the companies, etc. And so they don't really look a lot ahead, uh, except that a lot of uh, the startups coming in gives them a lot of information and insight. Actually, it's a very rich job as a VC because you get so much information from the different startups. It's like you you, are, you have a, a very privileged way of getting informed about what's going on in terms of technology, science, society, because all the startups come and give you this information. So it's a bit of a very interesting for curious people like me. It's very interesting to be a VC because you have a lot of information that you would have never sought or looked after. And it just arrives with a nice format about how can we make a company out of this trend, technology, market, etc. So that's really interesting in this way. Yeah, this was also the perception I got from the VC world. So whenever I worked with VCs, um, I really had the pleasure to work with uh, extremely smart, educated and well-mannered uh, people. Uh, and I always admired VCs for um, 
putting all that money to work and help entrepreneurs uh, to create um, technology and companies who improve the world. So I just wondered because you said that you left the VC world and uh, joined yeah. the also glorious world of entrepreneurship, but always I think entrepreneurs get a little bit more dirt on their hands. So what yes, was the sure. reason why you why you left the shiny glowing uh, stage of VCs and got more down to business and into the operations? Yeah. Uh, yeah, actually, it might be surprising, but for me, it was a necessary move just because I wanted to be uh, more involved in my companies. And uh, don't get me wrong, I, I loved my VC job. It's very fun. It's a lot of information. It's uh, very exciting. But I wanted to have more impact on my companies. When you go into larger funds and do larger rounds, you become less of a factor in the success of a company. Yeah, you might have bought the 5, 10, 15 million euros that the company needed at one point. But it's not what's have completely changed the thing. And, and of course, it can be frustrating, frustrating for the VC because it, it, I want to, the things to be done one way and I'm not going to be the one to decide in the end. And I might be wrong, I might be right, but I wanted to be able to, to prove and see if my decisions were better than others. And, uh, and it can be really frustrating when you tell an entrepreneur that he's going in the, right, in the wrong direction and it still goes there. And at the end, you were right and you could not do a thing about it because you didn't have the power to do it because when you have many VCs around the table and just not listening to one. So I wanted to go on, this, on the other side. But since I didn't want to be completely an entrepreneur because I'm too curious and, and I have too many uh, subjects of interest, I decided to go into a startup studio, which is a, a new trend in the in the VC world, coming from America, of course, coming from the US. Uh, you have example like flagship, Who's doing a, which is doing a tremendous job with this kind of thing, where you're just not uh, if financing companies, you're also creating them and, and nurturing them. So you're really as a part of the creation process, which is a part that I really love in terms of the intellectual excitement that it brings and the, all the possibilities that you can make. So I decided to go into a startup studio in between Vienna and Paris so that I could have my both uh, legs in Europe and create European companies at first because I really think we need to have European startup from the start uh, and, and be able to contribute as a co-founder to the company, take the best uh, deep technologies that I can find and work with the founders, with the scientists or maybe industry, people from the industry and create the best startups so that I'm a, a bit in between still VC and uh, an entrepreneur. I didn't really decide to just focus on one company, but make something like one or two per year. And if everything goes well with the team in a few next years and a bit of money to invest in each of my startups and really become a studio, like you would have a movie studio start creating one or two movies a year, that would be the same for a startup. And I think we can really professionalize this starting point instead of having an entrepreneur with a learning curve learning the network, learning how to do it, uh, different positions, different options, et cetera. When you have expertise at every part, uh, let's say a CFO, a legal person, an IP attorney, uh, commercials, uh, commercial and marketing people, uh, fundraising capabilities, et cetera, it's much easier for, for companies to really great, great start from a great starting point and really grow fast. That's the idea. We want to, we want to, we want to, companies we, which grow faster than they used to do in Europe and let's start with one country and another and another, which is uh, one of the problems in Europe compared to the US. In the US, when you've done your internal market, you're the world leader almost because it's a huge market. 
uh, in Europe, if you're the French leader, the German leader, you're almost nowhere. So you have to do it again in every other country and in the US and in Asia. So the idea is to start Europe, European. And if you're already the European leader, you, you might be onto something. So that's why I'm going to do it this way. And I really believe in the cultural exchanges and the different uh, ideas of, uh, of people. So that's why I'm doing that. And that's why I'm, I'm still a bit of a VC, but mostly an entrepreneur now because I, I get my hands dirty, as you said. <laughs> yeah, it's um, a little bit, uh, it's more operational work. Uh, the closer you come to the early stage world and the closer you come to entrepreneurship, stepping directly into a role in an executive board it's basically especially in startup companies it's a lot of groundwork that has to be done so it's this is what i mean yeah. with, uh, getting the hands dirty yeah and i think i i, I like it actually uh, maybe it's because of my background i studied at right after my engineering school uh, as a vc as a baby vc and then an analyst and then a partner and then etc and i've never really done the the job of being an entrepreneur in a startup and I really think you have to have both expertise experiences to be really able to to relate to what's going on um, and uh, even if I've done it maybe the opposite way that it used to be done and you start as an entrepreneur and then you become a VC uh, I think it's still very valuable for my uh, co-founder so that I bring this idea about I'm I'm a former VC. This is how you should talk to me. This is how we should do it, and let's discuss it, and let's see what I need, what I want, what where we're going, and then what's uh, what's the end point of it. So yeah, I'm trying to bring that up to my to my companies, and uh, and then it's uh, completely open in terms of technologies. Of course, I have a focus in healthcare, but I also, as I mentioned, I'm doing cybersecurity. I'm doing clean tech and doing nutrition and doing a lot of ag tech lot, as long as you have a huge nice technology that's why i call it deep tech uh, i'm interested and in if it's uh, and it has to have a meaning uh, coming back to what we were saying about capitalism it has to have a meaning it has to have something grander that just make money like uh, change climate change stop climate change uh, Uh, change the way uh, internet is done with uh, hacking and, and surveillance, change uh, the way you're uh, polluting your bodies and uh, trying to, to uh, take kilets or molecules out of it, uh, fight cancer, etc., etc. Things that are better, bigger than just, uh, okay, let's do a quick and uh, dirty thing and uh, get a few millions and go out of the way. As uh, I'm more on the... Uh, spiritual way of, of capitalism and uh, and uh, industry like uh, I want to do something good for the world and it's much bigger than just uh, getting a huge uh, uh, sum of money on my uh, bank account which is good I don't uh, blame it but uh, it should not be the, the end point it should be the benefit side benefit of it no I agree with that having a vision how to make the world a better place is key to success um for startup companies and um, i think this is this is necessary it's good to hear that you are now um available for first-time entrepreneurs so let me ask you one final question um let's just assume you are at a real life event in summer it's possible <laughs> in austria and uh you meet a lot of entrepreneurs there and you don't have time to uh dig very deeply into conversation and one of these entrepreneurs uh wants to have an advice so one single advice in one minute uh this entrepreneur wants to approach vcs and asks you this one question what is the most important thing that i should think about when reaching out to vcs 
Um, I think the most important thing they should think is, uh, and, and it's a really basic thing, what do I want from them in terms of advice? If what, Do I want to have their feedback on my technology, my access to market, uh, fundraising? So just advice is, okay, I'm talking to VCs, what is the only... Uh, points that you that you really want to to see in my company and uh, and sometimes uh, I see companies and it's really interesting to me uh, they just want to be right they just want to give you what you want they want to be right they want to tell you I have the best technology in the world yeah don't really care about it <laughs> you can't have the best technology of the world about something nobody wants so that's not the point oh I have the perfect vision of my competitors and I have the perfect way to make it happen no actually this is the so advice I would the only one advice I would give to my to this entrepreneur is just try to understand what they really want and give them this answer if they really want uh, uh, to invest in a deep tech technology early stage with a unicorn uh, potential, that's what they want. Okay. If they want to invest in a company with a market traction on the established markets, that's perfect. If they want to invest in a third mover, fourth mover in a new trendy market, why not? If they have a digital uh, digital uh, appetite, let's do let's try to find. But just try to uh, find the right answer for the right people because I've been contacted by people. Uh, funny things. I was investor investing in life sciences and I was contacted in to invest in uh, solar panels in uh, in different technology on photovoltaic stuff, hardware, semiconductors, and I was like, why are they even sending it to me? They're not looking at what I'm doing. So just the the single advice would be, uh, find the right person, the person you think is going to be attracted by what you're doing and find out where he wants or she wants. And then just answer that. That's uh, really basic commercial transaction uh, stuff. Uh, You have a customer, you have a partner, you have someone in front of you. What does he or she wants? She want, and why do you want to sell him or her? And at the end, it should be fine if you find the right fit with uh, with this person. And uh, another funny thing would be to say, don't listen to VCs. But <laughs> it would be a kind of a paradox since I'm a VC. So you should you should listen to them. But and you should listen to everyone, and then try to focus on and decide which advice is good and which advice is not good. But get them all. That's really interesting. Even if you disagree with people, it's always good to disagree. And I think a lot of people are not good at disagreeing. And you should be able to say, I disagree with you. And I love it for that. And I want to keep going on that thing because it's nice to disagree. Uh, it should not be a pattern. It should not be a disagreeing for the, for the purpose of disagreement. But it should be good to say, okay, we are not, we disagree. And this is why we disagree. And be and make it really clear and simple. Uh, these are the reasons why we disagree. And, and let's not make it a big deal. Some people are too emotional about uh, uh, being in disagreement. It doesn't mean we don't like each other. It doesn't mean we don't want to work with each other. It just means that we have different views on a subject. And this is maybe why we don't talk about a lot of politics in the workplace <laughs> because people would have to disagree on that and that might create some tension. So, But I think it's a good thing to, to establish a bit of disagreement sometimes and be able to see the opposite vision or, the, or different vision of the thing because you have different arguments which are really interesting. No, I you think can always find it interesting. 
This is absolutely sound advice and I love it. Uh, having diverse co uh, conversations, uh, listening to both sides, also to a diverse uh, range of opinions to come to a conclusion. I think this is key to successful entrepreneurs, um, not just being uh, single-minded and going down one track. Sebastian, okay. thank you very, very much for this great conversation and giving your insights into the VC world. Welcome to Vienna. Good to have you here. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks a lot, Christian. And thanks uh, for welcoming me here. It was a lovely time and I uh, hope to keep working with you, the network, the ecosystem for the next year so that we can really build uh, the best companies here and in, uh, in Europe globally. Thanks Thank you very much. Have a great day. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please, please share the podcast and make sure you've subscribed. Have a great day. Mm -hmm.